Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by two guests. 18-year-old American Josh Sargent talks about his hot start for Germany's Werder Bremen, and U.S. soccer investor Jordan Gardner discusses his strategy for buying a team in Denmark and using it to develop promising young American players. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. A brief disclaimer, my audio on the Sargent interview isn't perfect, but you can still hear me. Onward! Our guest today is Josh Sargent the 18-year-old forward for the U.S. men's national team and Werder Bremen. In 2018, he scored on his debut for both club and country. And in 2017, he became the first U.S. men's player ever to play in the same calendar year in the Under-17 World Cup, the Under-20 World Cup, and be called into a senior national team camp. Josh, congratulations on what you're doing right now, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, and I appreciate it. Uh... Looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Josh, on December 7th, you did something pretty remarkable in scoring on your first touch of your first senior game with Werder Bremen. What was going on in your mind as you came on in that game in the 75th minute? And what was going on in your mind when you score on your first touch of the ball? Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously... I didn't know if I was going to go in or not, and uh, when the coach called me over, I started getting nervous, but at the same time, very excited because it's what you dream of as a little kid, and they called my name when I was coming in, all the fans were really cool about it, and then scoring on my first touch only made everything twice as good, so it was a dream debut. And then you scored again against RB Leipzig on December 22nd with a poised finish off the post in the end. As a goal scorer, how would you describe your approach to what you do in the penalty box? Um, I mean, it's not really easy to explain. It's just an instinct I have around the goal, you know, 
just when I get around the goal, I want to score, and it kind of just comes off that way. Okay. It, it must be exciting to get on the field now for Verter's first team. From the start of the season through early September, early December, I kept looking every week to see if you were in the 18 and you weren't, and I kept hearing you were doing good things uh, over there. What did the coaching staff communicate to you during that time when you weren't making the game day roster for the senior team? Yeah, I mean, of course, it was a little frustrating for myself, just knowing that I was doing well and that I could be with the first team, but I know I have a lot of guys ahead of me that are older and more experienced, so it was important for me to stay patient and when my time came, just to make the most of it. Has the Verder coaching staff given you any indication about potentially getting chances to be in the starting lineup in 2019? Uh, we haven't talked about that yet, no. Um, I'm assuming that whatever happens, happens, you know. They think that I'm ready and I can be in the lineup and I'll be ready, but if they keep any time, then I'll keep working as far as I can. What have you learned so far about the way the game is played in the Bundesliga? Um, definitely very fast tempo. Um, it's a huge difference, you know, going from the fourth league in Germany to the first league. So you have to be thinking every second of the game, and it's much more physical and faster players. So everything is just increased in pace. And uh, what have the coaches uh, for Werder Bremen, what sort of things in particular have they wanted you to be working on? Um, I mean, we haven't really talked about it. I know in this upcoming training camp in South Africa, we'll have a meeting and sit down and they'll tell me what they need to, but we haven't really talked much about that yet. Okay. And you mentioned South Africa. You're on winter break. You're back in the States for right now. Uh what are you guys going to be doing? It sounds like you're headed to South Africa. Um, I mean, I'm sure we'll be working on uh, a lot of things, you know, fitness-wise. I know we have a lot of guys that like to run, so we'll be doing more of that. And I'm sure we'll have two good matches down there and just work on all the things that we didn't do successful the first half of the season. What has life been like for you off the field in Germany? Uh, are you taking German classes? Do you see other Americans over there? Yeah, so right now there's actually another American at the club playing for the second team. as are young, and uh, we're pretty good friends. And then I'm taking German classes, and my girlfriend is over there right now. So everything is coming together really well. Great. Uh, you're back in the U.S. right now. What are some of the things that you had missed the most about home while you've been in Germany? Oh, definitely the food, I have to say. <laughs> um, it's the biggest difference, but it's just nice to be around family and friends again. I think that's the biggest thing I miss. Nice. Uh, when you decide to sign with Werder Bremen, your fellow St. Louis guy, Taylor Twellman from ESPN, reported you had turned down Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund. Why did you make that decision? 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I wanted to go to a club where I'll get playing time. And I visited clubs, and I had a really good feeling about Brandon and uh, the coaching staff and everyone there. So I went with my gut, and I'm glad I made the decision. You developed in St. Louis at the respected uh, club, Scott Gallagher, and then you were part of the U.S. Soccer Residency Program in Florida. There's always a lot of debate about whether we're developing players the right way here in the U.S. What do you think were the most important aspects in your development process? So I'd say at the beginning, definitely um, playing a couple years up with Gallagher and St. Louis. It definitely pushes you and makes you think differently about the game. But uh, <clears throat> I think the best thing that has happened to me is honestly residency. I mean, when I was down there, I over the two years I was there, I could see myself improving tremendously. So I have to say that was one of the best things that has happened to my career. Nice. Um, U.S. Soccer finally named Greg Berhalter as the new U.S. Men's National Team coach in December. What are your thoughts on the hire? Yeah, I mean, I've, I don't know him personally, but I've only heard good things about him, and I see he did, well, he did really well with Columbus, so I'm excited to hopefully work with him. Nice. Uh, we're doing this interview on December 31st. Uh, do you have any New Year's resolutions for 2019? <laughs> Uh, I haven't thought much about it, honestly, but if there was anything, I would just say score more goals. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of in the big picture, I guess, I like asking players this question. What do you want to achieve in your career? Um, I think what any other young soccer player would say, that's I want to play for some of the best teams in the world. I want to break records, I want to score as many goals as I can and win a World Cup, win a Champions League. I I want to do it all. That's what every kid wants, so hopefully I can get close to it at least. Well, great. Uh, Josh Sargent, congratulations on everything you're doing over in Germany and with the U.S. national team, and good luck in 2019. Thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to thank Josh Sargent for joining me. Next up is my interview with U.S. investor Jordan Gardner. Our guest today is Jordan Gardner. He's an American who's a former vice president of business strategy at Hugo TV, 
and now is an entrepreneur in the soccer world whose story and ideas I think you will find intriguing. You can find him on Twitter at MRJordanGardner. Jordan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. Uh, lots to talk about here, but maybe the best way to start is for me to ask, how do you describe what you're doing in the soccer world? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I get that question asked quite a bit. Um, I would say soccer or on more of a global scale, football investment in definitely much more of an entrepreneurial way. Um, so a lot of my investments are different business models in different countries uh, with different goals in mind, but really the end goals to try to execute a vision that is really what I have in my head, which is that I love soccer. I love the game. I'm passionate about it, but it also has to and needs to be run like an efficient business. And too much of what I've seen in the space um, are people making uh, decisions and buying clubs and doing things for the wrong reasons and things in an inefficient manner. So my background and living out here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley is just a very different and unique approach to the, the way most people look at investing and, and getting into the, the soccer space. You know, we've seen more and more Americans get involved in soccer ownership, uh, not just in the U.S., obviously, but outside the U.S. with some of the biggest clubs in the world. And what you're doing is not that, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, certainly I, I know people. I, I have partners and friends who've gone on and invested in big clubs in Europe. Um, I think it's sexy, it's really exciting, and it certainly works for some people. That's that's not my model. My model is being very strategic and measured about the investments I make. So starting with smaller clubs that maybe most uh, people wouldn't find attractive. So one of our initial investments was the top club in the Republic of Ireland, which um, you know, people I talk to would ask and say, why would you buy a club in Ireland? That league is not strong. Um, you know, most of the top players in Ireland get poached by the best clubs in the United Kingdom. And when I stepped them through the business model and said, look, this is a really interesting club. It was in the Europa League group stage in 2016. There's a lot of financial upside being in European competition. It's a very modest club. So there's a lot of upside there. When people hear that, they're like, oh, okay, that's super interesting. Why didn't I think of that? Right. <laughs> So a lot of what I do is trying to go places and look at different models that other people aren't doing. If I'm going to invest in sports and in soccer, I'm not going to just check the boxes like everyone else's. I'm going to do something a little bit different. And what's the name of that club in Ireland? Uh, the club is Dundalk FC. So we won um, we won the Irish League this this season. They're on a summer calendar like uh, MLS. And so we'll be in Champions League qualifying this upcoming summer, which is really exciting. And European prize money is actually fairly significant. Right. Yeah, it's only going up um, when the club, when Dundalk, uh, this was before we owned the club, when they reached the group stage of the Europa League in 16, um, the club got 7 million euros in prize money. Um, this is a very modest club that's operating on probably a million five to two million euro budget. So it's a significant jump in revenue. Obviously, for the bigger clubs, the numbers skyrocket. But every year as the TV numbers increase in Europe, there's significant revenue potential in European competition. So in addition to your Irish club, what other interests do you have? Yeah, so I was approached around the same time that we were getting involved in Ireland. Um, I had an opportunity to invest in Swansea City, which I think most Americans are familiar with, um, with Bob Bradley and being in the Premier League up until last season. Um, I have a very, very small minority stake in the club. But it's a really unique opportunity for me. I, I go over to Swansea as much as I possibly can. I think I've been over about eight times since I joined the group last year. And I get to sit in the owner's box, go to the games, 
speak with the COO, speak with the sporting and technical staff and understand what the club is going through, certainly with the relegation and what works for the club, what doesn't work. And most of my other investments and ones I'm looking at are at a much smaller scale than Swansea. But it really is an open door for me to see how a relatively big club like that works and what things I can apply to some of my other investments. So it's really a learning it's a learning proposition for me. And it's obviously I still just kind of pinch myself getting over there and sitting in the owner's box, even in the championship. Um, it's a blast. I love going to the games, um, but it's very, very useful for me in my other projects that I'm working on in the soccer space. And before we go any further, I probably should have a step back just a little bit. And like you say, you're a soccer guy. So sort of what's your background in the sport? Yeah, so I played um, up until a PDL level. Um, I had run a company in college, so I did not play in college, but I, I played at a PDL level. So I always, always had a love in the game, love of the game. Um, I sold my company about four or five years ago, and I wanted to get back into the sport. I think I saw the growth potential that everyone else sees in American soccer. Um, I had a very good friend, a guy named Nick Swimmern, who owned the PDL team for the San Jose Earthquakes out here in the Bay Area. And the team had done very well its first season on the field. Off the field, it was a little bit disorganized. The club had lost some money. So he was looking for someone to come in and help help run that club. And you know, my goal in life was not to run a PDL team at high school. But it was a really interesting opportunity being affiliated with a major league soccer franchise, um, working with some top, top young players that were coming through the Earthquakes Academy system. And so I was able to leverage that opportunity um, was, you know, showed up at every league meetings uh, for Major League Soccer, was at the All-Star Games, really got to know some of the other owners. And that kind of gave me an open window into American soccer, you know, uh, got to know the guys at USL as well, and tried to figure out, is this where I want to spend my time, energy, money, whether it's ownership or front office or investment? What did that, what did I want that to look like? And ultimately, I decided that European uh, investment and, and, and working over there was a better option for me. But it's been very useful to stay very well connected into American soccer circles. And, and you know, I was at MLS Cup, which is where we met last week. Um, and so it, it's very, I think, positive to have those relationships on both sides of the Atlantic for what I'm doing moving forward. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to my next question, because this is something we talked about last weekend when we saw each other in Atlanta. You've got some very intriguing plans for potentially young American players at a European club that you're interested in buying? Yeah. So um, I think what I've seen over the last year, and I, I think a lot of what I do that works for me is, you know, most people in this sport are in the weeds, right? They're working for a club. They're trying to sell tickets. They're trying to recruit players. A lot of what I do is kind of a 30,000 foot view and look at the general landscape of the sport. And so what I've seen, which is very much what other people have seen is young Americans having difficulty cracking first team minutes in MLS, right? The league, the quality of the league is improving immensely. Um, teams like Atlanta are spending a lot of money on young South American players, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's becoming more difficult for Americans to get first team minutes. So we're seeing young American kids, whether they're in MLS academies or not, jumping to Europe at, I think, higher rates than you would have seen maybe five or six years ago. So I I sat down and thought to myself, why doesn't an American own a club in Europe as a landing spot for these players? You know, a lot of them are going to Germany for obvious reasons. They, it's difficult for them to get work permits in other countries or in the UK. Um, but they're going because their agent knows one club in Germany or it's very piecemeal. Maybe they're not going to the right spot for their development. So I started looking around saying, where can we buy a club that would be a great landing spot for some of these players? Not every single one, 
is going to be perfect for what we're trying to do. I, I, I don't have any illusions we're going to get Christian Pulisic right off the bat. But I did enough research and found that Scandinavia was the perfect landing spot for young Americans. Um, Sweden, Denmark, Norway have a very lax foreign player restriction rule, so it's very easy for those Americans to come over. There's a culture of playing young players already in those countries, first team minutes. Um, everyone speaks English in those countries, so it's very easy for those players to integrate versus Germany, for example, where it can be difficult on a cultural level. And I looked at the landscape and said, you, you see young Americans succeeding in Scandinavia already. You have Jonathan Amon, who's at FC Nordschland in Denmark. You have Roman Gall, who's in Malmo in Sweden, both recently got U.S. national team call-ups. So the idea that some of these kids can be a big fish in a small pond in Scandinavia versus kind of getting lost in the shuffle in, let's say, Germany was really intriguing to us. So the thought process is we buy a club, we bring over young Americans, and it doesn't exclusively have to be young Americans. It can be young South Americans. It can be other pipelines as well. Bring them over from 16 to 19, depending on if they can get an EU passport, where would we slot them in, whether it's into an academy or directly into the first team, develop them for a year or two or three, and then move them on to a bigger club. So that's that's the model right now. No one's really doing it, certainly not the scale. Um, so that's something that's really, really exciting for us right now. And sort of where are you in that uh, project? Is that something where you might own a club soon? Yeah, so hoping to, we're hoping to close on a club in the next three months. We have an ownership group that's completely um, filled up already. We have a couple NBA owners. I have a couple of U.S. men's national team former players who are interested in getting involved. Um, we're looking specifically in Denmark, and we have a term sheet out on one club. We're looking at a couple other clubs. Um, we're hoping at the very worst case to have a club up and operational within the next six months. So this is something that we're very active. I've been to Denmark three times in the last three months. So I'm very excited to be very active about this and really get this up and running in the very near future. And in terms of getting American players um, how would that work? Do you have to have relationships? Could you explain how that might work in terms of relationships with agents or you know ways of getting players over there? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. How are we actually going to get the players over? And I think at this level, it's very, very relationship driven. So certainly I have a lot of relationships with various stakeholders, whether it's youth national team coaches or top academy coaches and directors. Um, obviously agents are a big piece of this, many of whom I have very good relationships with. I think a lot of it, the way I look at it at this level, it's in, in many ways, it's almost like a college recruiting process because we're not going to be able to pay you transfer fees. These kids are so young that we can't, we can't and won't give them big contracts. We just can't, they're too young. So we're going to have to craft a narrative starting from a really strong, positive ownership group all the way down to infrastructure and, um, basically selling these players on the idea that this is the, uh, the best spot for them to develop from that 16 to 19 year old age group. And so I'm hoping I've had discussions in other areas on, you know, in terms of scouting and data and using other tools at our disposal to recruit the best players. But I'm realistic at that, at these age points that it's going to be difficult. There's just not a lot of data out there. Um, I just met with Luke Bourne, who was the head of analytics at Roma. And now he's with the Sacramento Kings. And we sat down for an hour and I just picked his brain about how, he would use data at this level to recruit players. And, you know, we, we had some kind of outside the box thinking about crowdsourcing and, you know, we're still kind of formulating the best ways, but certainly this idea that I see across the world in soccer of 
one sporting director knows one agent. So that agent says, here, take my two players. And they, they sign the players. Maybe they watch a little bit of video on Y Scout. The lack of sophistication just blows my mind on player recruitment. So that's certainly something we're very cognizant and focused on is that we're going to be very thorough and use all the tools we can for a club this size to make sure we're identifying the best players that can come over, succeed, and then move on to bigger clubs. So is it possible to give me an idea of how much of an investment we're talking about here when you buy a club in, in say, Scandinavia, say, Denmark, compared to starting an MLS club or a USL club or buying a club in a bigger country in Europe? Yeah, it's a significantly lower investment than, than anything on a comparable scale in the U.S. or in Europe. I mean, we're talking, depending exactly what level the club at, is it in the top in the Superliga, is in the first division, is in the top division in Norway or Sweden. I mean, the clubs we're looking at are anywhere from a million euros up to probably three million euros. And then you're, you're looking at probably a million five euro operating budget. And the most important thing for us is finding clubs that are that have a solid financial footing. So I'm not looking to buy clubs for the most part that, part that are losing money. I know everyone thinks every club in the world loses money, which a lot do. But a lot of these clubs in Scandinavia, because the culture is very much of efficiency and, and businesses over there are well run, I've been able to find a lot of clubs that they're not making money, but they're not losing money. And so the idea is we don't want to go in and buy a club that's hemorrhaging money and have to start digging out and really have to sell players to make budget. A lot of clubs we run into have to sell players to make budget, and we don't want to do that. If I'm if I'm completely wrong about this player development model, we'll be right back where we started in three years. I think too many investment groups, particularly Americans, don't really understand the model, think they can come in and know better than everyone else and com can commercialize clubs and come in in a way that can really bridge the gap on these clubs that are losing a lot of money. And when they're wrong, they're in the hole for a lot, a lot of money. So. Again, this is why I spend my time in Europe versus the States as much as I want down the road and hope that I'll be able to spend more time and energy here in the States. You could buy multiple teams in Scandinavia for the price of a team in the USL, for instance. That's interesting. I, yep. in, in terms of, like you mentioned earlier, uh, running a soccer club the right way uh, from a business perspective, what are the keys to doing it the right way? I mean, that's a loaded question. We could probably spend a whole podcast on that. <laughs> um, I mean, to me, at the end of the day, it starts with ownership. It always starts at the top, and it has to it has to be sustainable from the top on down. You have to stick to your business model. Um, a lot of groups that I see that buy clubs, they, they don't have a budget. They don't understand um, discipline when it comes to spending on players. I think everyone for the most part, buys a club because they want to win a championship. And ultimately, that kind of thinking um, can cloud smart strategic business decisions. So if you budget 5 million euros for players, maybe you end up spending 10 because you're chasing a championship. I think for us, when it's a player development model, yes, we would like we want to win, we want to get promoted, we want to do all that. But really, the first goal is player development. So as long as we know that, we can stick to our budgets and really be focused if we have to decide between selling our best player for a million euros and getting promoted from the second division to the first division, we're going to sell that player because that's that's our business model. Um, so I think going back to your question, like it starts at the top, hiring good people. I think really, you know, both on the soccer side and the technical side, it's super important to bring in really smart, good people who know what they're doing, who can stick to a plan. It's very easy for me to say this over here that 
this organization did well and this organization didn't. But you look, I mean, I live here in the Bay Area with the Golden State Warriors, like incredibly good ownership trickles down to really good people on the basketball side and really good people on the business side. And they retain talent because they're a really good organization. They have good organizational culture. So I don't think it's rocket science. It's just running a good business, hiring good people and being efficient and sticking to your business model. And let's say you buy this team in Denmark. Are you going to bring in an entirely new technical staff and business side staff? I think it depends what club we have. I mean, some, uh, what club we end up buying. Some of the clubs we're looking have better infrastructure than others. So, you know, if we like the infrastructure of the club, we certainly will probably keep that in place. We we certainly know what we know and know what we don't. Running a business in Denmark, while it's not that different than the U.S., will be a challenge to start. And I think we'll want to have a smooth transition. I think we've floated the idea of potentially using this club as a, as a hotbed for American coaches. I mean, you've seen Greg Berhalter was at Hammerby in Sweden. Bob Bradley was at Staubach in Norway. I mean, American coaches have succeeded in Scandinavia before. So I think bringing in that American methodology could be really interesting to us. Um, we've looked at FC Norseland, where Jonathan Amon is in Denmark, as a really um, strong player development hub. They're tied in with Right to Dream in Ghana, and so they bring in a lot of African players and develop those players. So some of the clubs we've looked at are kind of using that model. So we haven't exactly figured out what we want to do depending on what club it is, but whatever it is, it's going to be a very youth-focused player development model that showcases our players and makes sure that the organization sticks to its core, which is financial sustainability um, and certainly showcasing the players that we, we bring through. What kind of a response do you get from a Danish club if you tell them we want to buy you? It's been very positive because we're Americans. Um, the The pushback we've seen is from other foreign investment in that country or in Scandinavia. There's a Russian group that just bought a team in Denmark that's that's really running the team into the ground. So that's caused a lot of concern in Scandinavia. Um, but generally, when we go abroad, at least in the countries I've dealt with, Americans are thought of very highly and thought of as people with excellent business acumen. So certainly that gives us a leg up. And for me, and this was the same when we started our process in Ireland, was it's about creating relationships with the current ownership. Um, we're not dealing with a Manchester United scale club here. These are, for the most part, very small um, local ownership groups that are much more concerned about the investment groups coming in and being good caretakers to the club rather than wringing every penny out of a sale price. So some of the clubs we're looking at, um, we're talking about investing the money right back into the club versus going into someone's pocket. So in that case, it's very important that they feel that we are good caretakers, that we are going to come in and treat the club the right way because you know their reputation is at stake. They're members of the city council or local business owners. And so it's very, very relationship-driven, and that's what I found is the most important thing is cultivating those relationships and making the ownership group feel comfortable that we're the right group to come in. You know, you mentioned Jonathan Amon, a really interesting story, a guy who's doing well uh, at the professional level, got a call in to the U.S. men's national team. They actually sort of hid him for a while at his club. Can you explain why that was? I don't know the exact story of that. I do know that they bring in so much talent from Africa that they almost have an influx of, they, they only have a limited amount of first team minutes at Dorschland. Um, they have a very, very strong academy. Um, so they're bringing through so many young players that my sense, my guess would be is he was just, it was a numbers game where he was lost in the mix for a while there. Um, so that would be my sense. Um, they do player development probably better than any 
any club in all of Scandinavia. And they've moved players on to Belgium, to the UK, to some much, much bigger clubs. And I know Tom Vernon there, who, who does a really fantastic job on the player development side. And what's the response that you've gotten sort of from people that you've spoken to in U.S. soccer circles about your plan? I mean, everyone I speak with is very, very positive. Um, you know, certainly... I haven't like spoken with people in MLS directly about this. I understand that, you know, if kids move off from MLS academies to what we're doing in Europe, it's going to ruffle some feathers. Um, you know, major league soccer is spending quite a bit of money on their academies and certainly they want those guys to play first team minutes. Um, I think the general consensus is there's, there's a path for every player. Some players, a homegrown contract in MLS is going to be what makes sense for them. Some it's Europe and top clubs in Germany and, we're hoping to be, or maybe some it's college still, but we're hoping to be that fourth option where it's another, it's another choice for these young top players and maybe it's the right decision for them and their pathway to first team minutes is a little bit quicker. But generally speaking, the, the consensus has been very positive. I think young Americans are hungry to get in Europe and showcase themselves, certainly in a league where at, if, if they're good enough at 16 and 17, they could potentially play first team minutes, which is you just don't see that in Europe right now. And I want to just uh, ask in in the long-term sense of things, where do you see all of this heading eventually for you if things go well? Yeah, I mean, certainly this the clubs we're looking at Scandinavia are relatively small. Um, I think the hope is that we can, and the goal is that we can prove the model on a small scale and, that, and then do this in bigger and better clubs and bring over young players, certainly Americans, to bigger clubs in Europe, whether that's in Spain or France. Um, I think things in the United Kingdom are difficult with the work permits, but for me, on a personal level, this is a player development model. I have a minority stake in a club in Ireland, which is much more of a European play. Um, I have a very small minority stake in Swansea, which is a completely different scale. So ultimately, the goal is to have kind of a diversified portfolio of different investments that are interconnected with different business models. And whether they're clubs, academies, whether they're in Western Europe or developing countries, some have some are more stable, some are more high risk, whether we bring in companies that are more on a venture capital side who are looking at the real estate component or esports or some of the ancillary businesses around soccer. But the goal is to really just craft more of a global soccer business. And certainly I'm talking three to five to ten years down the road. But I think there's opportunities in the game to do things again a different way, look at it more strategically. Certainly you could look at the city football group is doing things very, very interesting on a global scale. But I personally don't think you need to own an MLS team or a La Liga team or an EPL team to do many of the things they do. Um, and I also think you can diversify a portfolio in a way where you don't have to always own first-team clubs. It doesn't just have to be player development focused. You can do things very creatively. I think everyone in the space, people are doing what I'm just talking about in different ways, but no one's doing it kind of cohesively under one umbrella in a way that's interconnected. What do you think we're going to see in the coming years? Are we going to see even more and more Americans buying soccer teams in Europe from countries large and small? I mean, certainly I think we'll continue to see Americans looking at big clubs in Europe. I mean, it's a vanity play for many American ownership groups. It's very sexy. I mean, you, you see Newcastle and an American group just went into Bordeaux. I think we'll continue to see that because as the prices go up on American sports franchises in general and MLS, the expansion fees go up. You kind of look and see what that could buy you in Europe and you say, okay, you know, Bordeaux was just bought for 80 million euros, right? That's, you know, with the conversion rate, that's a little bit more than half of what you would get into the MLS for now. So I think you'll start to see that. 
I don't know if we'll see an influx of Americans buying smaller clubs. I mean, I get asked a lot, you know, I'm out there talking about what I'm doing. Am I worried someone else is going to come in and do it instead of me? And I'm, my thought is like, hey, no one really wants to do it. It's a very small scale. Certainly very few people have those kind of connections. But I think we're starting to see American investors getting a little bit more sophisticated in what they're looking at. And as that happens, I think we'll see more foreign investments, certainly in Western Europe. Is there anything else we should know about what you're doing in the soccer world? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's a really interesting space. I definitely get asked a lot, what do I do and how do I explain it? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just exciting. Look, I mean, the goal at the end of the day is hopefully to bring Americans to Europe and develop them. And, and hopefully they're playing for the national team in the next five years. You know, hopefully by 2026, we have a pool of players that maybe started at our club in Scandinavia and are at much bigger clubs. Um, certainly, we would love to find the next Christian Pulisic or Weston McKinney and bring them through our club. Um, that's a big piece of it. But I also hope that as things grow in American soccer and U.S. soccer, that more people like me are brought into the fold. And, and you know, certainly there are other like-minded individuals out there, young people that have a lot to offer for U.S. soccer. And I don't know what exactly that's going to look like. Um, but I think as things move forward, that there's a lot more people getting into the sport in the way I am. And I think it's, it's very interesting to see that and, and hopefully things grow and, and, and improve moving forward. Well, part of the goal of this podcast is to uh, introduce people that I find interesting that I've met in, in the soccer world and uh, give listeners a chance to hear what they're about. You certainly qualify as that. Uh, Jordan Gardner, you can be found on Twitter at Mr. Jordan Gardner, Mr. Jordan Gardner. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Josh Sargent and Jordan Gardner, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Channels, and Fubo TV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.